You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. When I was reading this text, one, one question uh, kind of came to mind about the Christmas season, and it's this. Why is the desire for peace associated with Christmas? Why is Christmas associated with a human global desire for peace, for no conflict, right? Plenty of Christian songs obviously dwell on peace. They, they reference scripture that calls Jesus the Prince of Peace and invite Jesus to usher in his reign of peace. But plenty of secular Christmas songs do the same. Uh, I grew up listening to a hokey Christmas song called Grown Up Christmas List, uh, where the singer lists some things that she wants from Santa Claus, and this includes no more lives being torn apart, that wars would never start, etc., etc. Or maybe you know uh, famously that John Lennon sings this, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, let's hope it's a good one without any fear. War is over if you want it, war is over now. So thanks to John, actually that's John and Yoko, technically. Uh, so what does war ending, conflict ceasing, have to do with the birth of Jesus? Well, let's look at this prophecy in Isaiah and begin to unpack it. And I think as we do, we'll see that this human desire, this natural desire for peace, for no conflict in our world, and the celebration of the birth of Jesus are actually linked events. And so before we read this, this prophecy again, there's some, let's get some quick history for context. Isaiah is this prophet which means he hears the word of the Lord and he tells the people of God what God is saying. So he's the, a prophet for the nation of Israel. And this is about 700 years before Jesus is born, like I said. And this is actually a time where the kingdom of Israel has been split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And at this time, Isaiah is a prophet in Judah because Israel has been taken captive by a foreign nation. And God is telling Isaiah and speaking through Isaiah and saying, not only is half or half of my people captive by Assyria in exile, but you, Judah, are soon to be taken captive by Babylon, another nation. So needless to say, the people of Israel are hearing these words and they're troubled. Not these specific words, but the word of Isaiah that he's speaking. They're, they're troubled. There's, there's trouble within the kingdom. The kingdom's divided and there's about to be a long period of exile and captivity but here in, in chapter 2, and punctuated throughout the 66 chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah, are these beautiful glimpses of God foretelling his people of his salvation for them. So with that in mind, let's read chapter 2, 1 through 5 again together. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the later days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations. He shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
And so for me, when I was reading this, the easiest way to kind of understand this prophecy was to take it in three chunks, three verses, two, three, and four. So first, verse two is all about God's presence coming to earth. So historically, to the people of God, God has presented himself on a mountaintop, right? And the house of the Lord refers to his habitat, habitat dwelling or the temple, right? So verse two is predicting this, that one day God's presence will be on earth and his presence will be among the nations in a way that all the nations will see and flow toward him. So there will be an undeniable manifestation of God's presence. And second, verse three shifts the narrative a little bit and talks about the teaching of God or the law of God flowing out to the people flowing out in a way that people desire to walk in the ways of the teaching. They, they desire to follow the ways of the Lord. And it will come from Jerusalem, the capital and central city of the people of God. And then third, verse 4 talks about the Lord as the ruler, that he will judge between nations and decide disputes. And it says this judgment won't lead to conflict, but rather peace. A king whose wisdom incites peace on earth, right? That's why it says the people don't even learn about war anymore. They, they don't need to learn about it. There's no reason to learn the art of war because peace reigns on earth. So three prophecies, the presence of God on earth, the teaching of God flowing from Jerusalem, and the Lord judging in a way that leads to global peace. So just for a moment, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the people of Israel hearing this prophecy. They don't know anything about Jesus who is coming. They can't fathom this God coming to, to earth as the form of a baby and doing all the things that Jesus does and says. So they're trying to wrap their head around what would this look like? What would this the presence of God and the teaching of God and the rule of God look like? What would this really this government, this global government look like? And I think to try and figure out what it might look like, they might think back to their own governments, their own rulers, their own kings. So briefly, I want to talk about one government that fits this description as a case study um, for us to kind of understand what they might be thinking. And it's the, the rule of King Solomon, a king that would have been fresh in the minds of the people hearing this prophecy. So let's read about him. It's in 1 Kings chapter 10, um, starting in verse 23. It says this, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom with which God had put in, into his mind. Every one of them brought his pres him presents, articles of sil silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, and much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. So this is an example of a very successful government, right? The king's presence in wisdom is with King Solomon. The wisdom that King Solomon has that's put there by God is drawing all nations to King Solomon. All the nations of the earth come and hear his wisdom. This idea that he's wise in settling disputes, right? 
and it leads to incredible economic success. Silver as plentiful as stones, it says. And even Egypt, this historic enemy of Israel, is coming and engaging with trade and hearing about the wisdom of King Solomon. So there's this great global peace and prosperity when King Solomon's reigning. And it kind of sounds like the things that this prophecy is promising, right? It's an amazing government, but you only have to look at the title of chapter 11 to to get a peek at what happens. The title of chapter 11, the next chapter, right after this ends is this, Solomon turns from the Lord. Solomon turns from the Lord. So he's a great king with a great government for a time, but he turns from the Lord and that triggers a domino effect that leads to the division of the kingdom and eventually the exile of both kingdoms. So the people hearing this prophecy, the Israelites hearing this prophecy, might think this kind of sounds like Solomon before he ruined it all. So they're looking back to think, what, what kind of king, what, what kind of rule, what kind of government is this going to be? What is, what is Isaiah predicting? What is God predicting is going to happen? So they're hearing these three prophecies, the presence of God on earth, the teaching of God flowing through Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, and the Lord judging in a way that leads to peace. And they're trying to fathom it, right? But they have no idea how to put flesh on this prophecy. And they're wondering, it kind of sounds like Solomon, but will there be a better king, a better government than Solomon's government? We hope so. There's this really brilliant uh, part of the original unveiling of the iPhone, right? If you don't have one, ask for it for Christmas. It's very expensive. Um, but, but Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, is about to unveil the very first iPhone. And the people at the presentation know that there's, there's been some leaks and there's some sort of phone coming, but they're not really sure what's, what it's going to be. And, and Steve Jobs comes out on stage in his black shirt and he says, today we are releasing three revolutionary products. The first is a touchscreen iPod. Touchscreen iPod, a music player. The second is a revolutionary telephone. And the third is a brand new internet communications device. And people are like, wow, this is cool. Three, we thought we were gonna get one thing, we're gonna get three things. And then he starts repeating them over and over. An iPod, a phone, an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone, an internet communicator. And if you watch the video, you start hearing people in the audience slowly start to clap and gasp, and they start getting it. Steve Jobs even says, iconically, are you getting it? It's not three devices. It's one device. The iPhone. And everybody loses their minds, and the world gets changed forever. Which is kind of true, actually. I think this prophecy is similar it's almost as if God through Isaiah is saying to the people, my presence on earth, my teaching flowing from Jerusalem, a ruler who will judge with peace, my presence on earth, my teaching flowing from Jerusalem, a judge who will rule with peace. Are you getting it? And the people of Israel are like, we're not. We don't understand. We don't get it. And they wait 700 years. The beauty, this isn't 
three separate events. This isn't three separate realities. This is one event. This is one prophecy being fulfilled by one person. It's Jesus. Jesus is God's presence made flesh, right? John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus dwells among the nations in a way that the world will eventually be able to, unable to deny that Jesus did some of the things he did and said some of the things he did and existed. Jesus is God's teaching brought to earth and flowing to the nations. John 14, 6 says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when the prophet says, let us go that he may teach us to walk in his ways, Jesus is saying, I am the path. I am the way. And we know that after Jesus raises from the dead, excuse me, and ascends to the throne as the living, breathing king, he becomes a righteous and complete judge that brings peace to the world. Acts 10 says this, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And what do they preach? Verse 10 says, the good news of peace. Through Jesus. Peter here in Acts is telling the disciples that Jesus is the appointed judge of the world who ushers in the gospel of peace. So Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah. However, like the Israelites, we find ourselves in an interesting and specific time in history. So while the Israelites might look back at their kings and try to use their history to look forward at these prophecies and discern what what the government and the king is going to be like, we now look back at Jesus' birth and try and look forward to the government and king that will come again. We live after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We know that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, ushering in peace between us and God, ultimately, which allows for peace between each other and our neighbors by taking our sins, paying for them on the cross, and raising again. And we know that in that raising, he now rules the world at the right hand of the Father as the judge of the living and the dead who ushers in peace. So, all that being true, we still sing songs hoping for peace. We still look around and see a world full of brokenness, full of sin, of war, of lies, of hatred, of greed. A world yearning for peace, full of atheists and Christian alike singing songs that yearn for peace among the nations. But unlike John Lennon, I don't think peace is achievable if we simply want it. Wanting something badly enough doesn't necessarily produce it. So for us and for the Christmas story, there's an already component of who Jesus is and what he has done, and there's a not yet component of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. That's what Advent reminds us of. It reminds us of the wonders of who Jesus is and what he did. But it also points us to a final reality. And so does this passage in Isaiah. There's a deeper meaning here, right? That first meaning is All that has been accomplished by Jesus when he came to earth in Bethlehem. 
And yet there is a day coming where God's presence among the people will be fully realized. A time coming where every knee will truly bow before the king. There's a day coming where the people of God will fully walk in the way of the Lord as fully sanctified brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the Father. There's a day coming where Jesus will once again and once and for all judge all men and women and it won't bring war or strife, it'll bring peace. Fully realized, eternally lasting peace. So we can look back and see how Jesus fulfilled and won us freedom and taught us his ways and died for our sins. And at the same time, we can see how these prophecies will finally be fulfilled when he returns again. Jesus fulfilled the Isaiah prophecy by coming to earth. Jesus is fulfilling the Isaiah prophecy by ruling right now. And Jesus will complete the prophecy by coming again. And so we wait with anticipation. And this morning, as we wrap up, I want us to consider what should we do in the meantime. And Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5 tells us very simply what to do. He says this, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Walk in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? First John 1, 7 tells us, says that we should live in the light as Jesus is in the light. It says that we should love each other and be free from sinning. So we follow Jesus and walk in the light by loving one another, turning from sin, and ultimately by spreading the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. If you still have your Bible at the Isaiah passage, at the very end of verse 3 it says this in chapter 2, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I want to show you specifically how this was, was very literally and specifically fulfilled in Luke chapter 24. Jesus has lived and died and raised from the get, dead at this point. It's Luke chapter 24, verse 46, and he's walking with some disciples, and he says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It's direct fulfillment of this prophecy, right? Jesus tells them, yes, this is the message that will be proclaimed, but from Jerusalem. He says, this is the word and law that flows out from Jerusalem, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations. And then he finishes by saying this, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this is where we'll leave this morning. The power Jesus talks about coming from on high is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God descends on the disciples and lives within them. And likewise, when we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us growing us and helping us walk in the light and share the good news of Jesus. So as we come to the table this morning, and really throughout this whole season of Advent, I want us to remember these things at the forefront of our mind together as a church. I want us to remember who Jesus is and what he has done. Remember the gospel. I want us to anticipate his glorious return. I want us to walk in the light by loving one another and loving our neighbors and turning from sin. I want us to remember that the spirit who dwelled in the disciples dwells within us, who 
who allows us to walk in the light, who ushers us to share the gospel, which means we fulfill the great commandment to love God and one another, and we fulfill the great commission to spread the news of who Jesus is and what he has done to all people, to all corners of the world. So let's remember those things as a church together this Advent season. And together, let's proclaim as we take communion this morning, Christ is born, Christ is lived, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Jesus, we await your return. We know you are king, ruling and reigning right now. We know you came to earth as God's presence and dwelt among people. We know that God's presence now dwells within us and to each other through us. We know that your teaching has flowed from Jerusalem so much so that we, thousands of years later, read it. We look to it to sharpen us and sharpen each other. We look to it for wisdom. And Lord, we trust you as judge of the nations because you're the only judge who ever has been or ever will be who will not bring war but bring peace. So Lord, I, I pray that I would grow in trust of you this season, that I wouldn't get distracted with every little event in December or what's on the list or what's not, but I would get distracted by looking up and remembering who you are, what you've done, and what you're coming to do. I pray that for all of us, this season would be magical, not in the sense that presence and things like that would rule, but magical in the sense that you are the God who has accomplished great things and you are coming to finish your work. what's deemed by magic as magic by some is true it's actually true so we believe it this season and in all things Lord will we trust you will we love you will we grow in our love for one another and will we remember who you are and what you said you're coming back to do so Lord we love you we praise you and we trust you in your name we pray